welcome to Between the Bylines with your host, Roberto Rojas. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to another episode of Between the Bylines. I'm Roberto Rojas. We continue our episode speaking to many esteemed members of the media all around the world. But today, instead of going to Europe or South America, we'll go straight across Long Island Sound to speak to someone who has a ton of experience working in journalism and in the classrooms. So, let's get straight to it. Our sixth guest of this series is a good friend, a good colleague, and someone who's helped me a ton in my development as a reporter working at a radio station. And I'm glad to have on the line Long Island Bureau Chief and Assistant News Director at WSHU Public Radio, J.D. Allen. J.D., hello and welcome to Between the Bylines. How are you today? Hey, Roberto. Thanks so much for having me. No, it's a pleasure. I mean, firstly, I do have to go in straight up and ask... How has been your life, you know, basically since the pandemic started? I mean, obviously, it's been quite different for all of us ever since the pandemic started, for everyone working at the radio station, for people working in journalism as in general. But I'm curious to see how has your life been, you know, over the last year working at WSHU and also, you know, given the fact that you're also a professor as well. Oh, I mean, it's been totally weird. I mean, we went from seeing the same people, having the same support system uh, there in the station to going home. And it's only uh, recently that we've started to go back into our office spaces. Uh, but it still feels weird. You know, we, we're wearing these masks, which is completely needed for the time being. And, you know, we're getting vaccinated and doing all the things that we need to do. But, you know, we've really had to redesign an industry um, that's been around for about a century now. And um, although that industry has changed dramatically in that time, I think the last year was a more than an eye opener for, you know, how we can efficiently work from home, how we can efficiently uh, be safe working in this field during a pandemic, during a racial period of racial reckoning. Um, and then related to your last point was how do we teach in this environment? How do we uh, hold effective fellowship and internship programs at the radio station, but then also how do I teach my kids in a virtual classroom things that they'll need to know that we're only just figuring out right now, you know, as we report on the pandemic from home. Yeah, and it seems like with everything that's going on and how Zoom has been part of our everyday life now, it's a household name that certainly is going to be useful uh, in the future. I could, I could go without Zoom for the rest of my life. I never <laughs> want to see that platform ever again. Sorry if it's sponsored by them, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think um, after a while, it kind of starts to drag on a bit, so I completely understand. Um, I wanted to go to the beginning of your life. So you obviously grew up on, on Long Island, you know. You, I remember, I think I did an interview with you for one of my stories at school where, you know, you actually grew up listening to WSAU Public Radio. So I just wanted to ask, what drew you into journalism and wanted to end up doing that as your career? You know, what what's the story beyond that? Yeah, I'm a Long Islander, born and raised, um, as they say. Um, and yeah, I did listen to WSHU Public Radio as a kid. I would um, leave uh, my house a little bit early in the morning, go pick up a bacon, egg, and cheese, which is one word um, <laughs> at, on Long Island when you order it. And I would sit in my car before my AP uh, math class and chow down listening to Tom Couser. And now I, I write for Tom Couser, which is pretty amazing stuff. Um, but what really got me into journalism was much later. When I was graduating high school, journalism wasn't really on my scope. I did, like, reviews for the student paper in high school, but I wasn't serious about it. I was really interested in globalization, which was, like, kind of this new buzzword 
Um, it's like a cross-section of history and politics and how we operate um, independently in our international and global scope. Um, so when I was applying to schools, that's what I was looking for. Um, due to money and, and a lot of other considerations, I decided to go to school at Stony Brook, and um, they did not have a globalization program. Uh, but I was a history student, and I mean, I like American history. I was taking American history classes. I wasn't learning anything that I didn't already know. Um, I took a journalism class. It was a news literacy course, which I think is incredibly important now as a professional. Um, and sort of liked it, but then the professor brought up something that um, is often attributed to Washington Post president and publisher Phil Graham, uh, and he said that news is only the first draft of history. And I said, hmm, I could get behind that. I could write the first draft of history. That sounds good. And that's kind of what led me in this path, is that I realized that I could have a real active role in being able to write this first draft of history. And now... As a working professional and looking at this past year of racial reckoning and and, you know, working with my students in the classroom, too, I think it's also really important that we reflect on the history that's been written and say, OK, is there a more complete version of history that deserves to be written today? Absolutely. I, th I think it all passes down from generation to generation, from teacher to student. And I think it can go a long way. And I think a class like that is essential, I would say, for, for many students that are looking all to students. be in this. Yes, even better, all students. Uh, I think because having that kind of, you know, in a, in a time of misinformation and all and everything that's been going on, I think it's very important that students on all across the, the United States and even the world have that kind of understanding of media literacy. I completely under, I completely agree. So, yeah, I mean, if we want to make this the news literacy show, absolutely. <laughs> Everybody should be well-versed in news literacy. It should be uh, taught as, uh, as, as thorough as, say, your intro to statistics, statistics class or your algebra class, um, because while that helps you identify the numbers in front of you, um, being able to identify the news and media that you consume is so incredibly important. I hope you're not sponsored to say that. I hope you're not getting any money. I know, but that. if anybody wants to give me money for saying that you should read more sources, I absolutely will take that money. <laughs> so obviously going into that experience at Stony Brook, you also got a master's in communications at Syracuse University. And you know, I just wanted to ask, how did those two experiences lead you into the work that you're doing right now, not just at WSHU, but also as a professor and obviously the experience that you've done uh, during that time as well? Yeah, so, I mean, yes, I wanted to teach, so I knew that um, I was going to need higher education, um, and I chose a school like Syracuse Newhouse um, because it's a top-tier school. And in that case, you know, I'm looking for the networking capabilities of having, you know, Newhouse tied to my master's. Um, so networking is incredibly important when you're considering, you know, uh, looking at different opportunities in the media landscape. Um, but I will also say, at every point in your career, um, it is always worth refining your skills and learning things that you did not previously know. Um, and being able to take those new skills and melding it with what you do and finding new ways to incorporate these new skills into um, new projects um, as they come along. So uh, professional development is incredibly important. Yeah, 100%. Looking into the career a bit so far, you've done work as a freelancer for the Long Island Business News, WAMC Northeast Public Radio, the Southampton Press, among many other locations. Yeah, tell me a bit about those experiences and what you've been able to take from it now in, in your current roles. 
Yeah, so I mean, those are some uh, trade publications. There are also a lot of community publications. And then you have something like WAMC Northeast Public Radio, which is a very large public radio outlet um, that covers all of the Northeast. And my job was to look at Berkshire County, Massachusetts, Northwest Connecticut, and Southern Vermont, and all of the community and farmlands in between. But at all of those locations, what I learned are community values and what values stick with different communities uh, that make up those locations. And being able to identify those community values is a big part of what goes into finding stories. But it also goes into not only the narrow interpretations of like, okay, what's important to this community? Is it uh, budget talks? Is it, um, you know, that the garbage is being moved on a particular day? Is it affordable housing? But then also looking at issues that uh, challenge the community's beliefs. Maybe they are haven't been open-minded to values and solutions that are outside of their community because psh, that could never happen in our small town. Well, it happens in small towns across America, and this is how they're handling. Yeah, and I think it's a good segue, uh, you know, going into the, my next question about how important do you feel that local news is? You know, during a time where you can look at the average American that, you know, always gets their news depending on where they are on the political spectrum. It could be a, a CNN, an ABC, a Fox News, whatever it may be. But you bring up a good point on that last point, how, you know, these kind of things that happen in small towns, people don't understand that or people perhaps aren't realizing it because they are not consuming that information um, via, via their local, you know, news websites, newspapers, radio stations, that kind of thing. So I'm curious to know how important, in your opinion, is local news from all mediums, you know, in a time where mainstream media is becoming much more addictive and, and time consuming for, for people all across the United States. Yeah, I mean, incredibly important. Um, support your local newspapers, support your regional newspapers, report, support your state newspapers, support your regional, like, in the country newspaper, support your regional, um, you know, NPR member station, uh, support your local uh, news radio stations, TV stations, etc. I mean, it's really important to identify the value of news and news um, from different um, alignments. Um, is also very important because, again, those are pulling on different strings of different community values that are in your region. And um, being able to, going back to news literacy and then understanding those is very important. But I also want to just say something, uh, being bearing the responsibility as the journalist, because it's very easy for me to say, hey, audience members, it's up to you to understand what's going on here. It's also a responsibility of us, the journalists, to report and report things properly, of course, with all the journalism ethics that, you know, goes with that. But also be careful and being careful of helicopter coverage, which is when we have nothing to do with the region 364 days out of a year, but then something happens in that neighborhood that we rush to and we report on as if we've been there the entire time. And then the moment that that story is over, we pack up and leave and we never mention those people who are affected ever again. And it's those stories that I think do more damage than good if that we're going to be looking at community values, we need to be members of the community and looking at our communities equally. Well, so it's, it's, it's a good point that you mentioned about community values. And I wanted to ask, you know, in specific about your experience dealing with those in Long Island, dealing with those in Connecticut as well. What, what do you feel 
makes those two locations special in terms of reporting, you know, getting to know people and, and having that all bunched up in, 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 in essence, to have people educate about those areas. Well, so I know that before we were going into this conversation, you know, you mentioned that we wanted to talk a little bit about how these regions looked at the pandemic. And I think that's a great example of how different communities respond to a problem. In this case, a global pandemic, the pandemic. Um, and what that was really a lesson to a lot of people was was about civics and how government works and the different le levels of government and what government can actually do for you and what you need to do for government to make that happen. Um, you know, you take a place like Connecticut where there are towns and cities and then there are state governments and a lot of and a lot of Connecticut's response has been response has been. Um, on the state level, being able to disperse federal resources and state resources to communities that were most affected. Um, in New York, on Long Island, there's a couple of other layers of government in there where we have county governments. And even though there's Fairfield County and New Haven County and New London County and et cetera, in Connecticut, there are no county government structures. So there's no one to help I guess, bring that resource down the ladder a little bit more. On Long Island, there are those resources, but um, there are county governments and there are village governments that are underneath towns too. But when you start to build more rungs to this ladder of being able to distribute resources, there has to be a conversation at every single rung of that ladder to be able to bring something to the person in need. And that can be exhausting when you are just someone who needs something from your government now or are asking something of your government and need to climb those rungs to get there. Um, and a lot of people don't understand how that works. So this pandemic has really shined a light on how much civics education is needed in this country and in our region and being able to understand what their relationship is with government, who's count who's accountable to what their needs are and how they can better um, interact with their government. Well, it's a good point that you mentioned about the whole pandemic and going into that question. What do you think about the way that both the region of both Long Island and Connecticut have dealt with it, especially given the fact that, you know, at one point it was where we had peak levels of, of obviously COVID cases around a year ago. And now we're looking at both regions, you know, with high vaccination rates. I was looking at it, I think, the other day that Connecticut has probably the highest vaccination rate in the entire United States. So I'm just curious about what your opinion has been so far of both those regions in the last year or so. I think it's very easy to go on one side or the other to say that, you know, we didn't respond to this as well as we could or we responded to, to this much better than, you know, other states out there. Um, so I kind of want to rule out both of those answers, and I'm going to say that the answer is probably the gray area in between where, yeah, it's fantastic that Connecticut has done such a great job in connecting people uh, with vaccines. But until everybody in all communities are receiving the care that they need, which has been a problem in all states across the country for the past year on every level of this pandemic, um, at every point of this pandemic, then we can't say that it was successful because there are still people who want the vaccine, um, who don't have the information that they need about the vaccine to make, you know, their intelligent choice to get it, um, or don't have the access that they feel they need uh, to 
to get the shot. And Long Island is a completely different story. You know, we had some of the absolute worst infection rates in all of the country. Um, and I mean the worst. And they weren't necessarily in communities um, that were affluent and white and, you know, in some of the coastal regions that have these beautiful mansions. They were among the working class. They were among people of color. And um, we celebrated when we opened a testing site in those communities because that way we, that way we would at least know what the infection rate looked like and you know those dollars were not extended so those testing sites opened for a time was able to coordinate quarantines as they needed but then they eventually closed and a lot of the vaccine rollout has had a similar problem so until communities can get equitable care Across this pandemic, uh, there is no state that should be claiming that they're champions. Yeah, absolutely. I think obviously the whole path of wanting to go back to a new normal, you know, herd immunity, I think it all starts with that kind of access for communities. The fact that it shouldn't be difficult for them to get a vaccine and having to wait many hours and, and, you know, having to wait many days or even months to get a vaccine for even your first dose, let alone your your second dose. Um, and, and it I goes a long wanna... way. I just want to poke on one more thread because you and I are both considered, quote unquote, young people and young people are being blamed right now for having among the lowest vaccine um, uptake right now. But then again, officials and outside of the media landscape where we might be more educated on what's happening than, say, our friends and and colleagues uh, from from our schools or whatever is, you know, we just spent the last year telling people to stay inside and to wear masks and to not trust, you know, uh, large groups and stuff like that. And we prioritized getting uh, services to people who were most vulnerable and those are tend to be um, sick or older individuals. And now we're starting to roll these out to young people after a year of kind of be kept, in, kept on the sidelines and being blamed for infection rates, you know, I could see where the hesitancy would come from. Yeah. So, you know, I think that this is not just a racial disparity, but it's also a generational disparity. It's also an ability disparity. You know, what about people with disabilities that can't physically leave their home and they've really been kept on the sidelines this entire time? It, it really is unequal to many people around the around the country and around the region. So, yeah, it's, I completely agree with what you said. So I wanted to switch gears into, obviously, the career that you do. Um, obviously, you inside, besides being a reporter, you also work as an adjunct professor at both your alma mater at Stony Brook and also at Suffolk County Community College. So I want to ask, how important is it for you to be able to teach those aspiring journalists in the same route that you were taught as a student? Yeah, I I mean, I really enjoy teaching. I really enjoy teaching because a lot of times the students have better ideas than uh, than I can come up on my own. You know, my, my scope of understanding is through the experiences that I have had. But, you know, these classrooms of young people that come on come into my classroom, they have had different experiences. And through their experiences and the work that they've been a part of, you know, not only do I get to be their professor, but I get to be their editor. And and being able to talk with them about their story development and about their development as a journalist, 
I learned something in myself about, you know, things that I should be taking more seriously. Uh, you know, I can't tell you how many times, you know, in the senior capstone class that I just finished teaching that I really relied on tools that I got from students a semester or two ago in relation to LGBT organizations and their um, recommendations uh, for covering their communities. And the same goes with communities of color. The same goes uh, for uh, communities of different abilities. So, you know, the, this this learning process goes both ways, and that's why I really appreciate it. So what, what would be that kind of piece of advice that you would give to your students in terms of wanting to go out into the field, if you had to say something along those lines? Uh, you never know everything. You're never going to know everything, and you need to be really open-minded about the experiences of the people that you're meeting. Journalism is a great career because it allows you to meet new people and go to new places. Um, but unless you have, you know, a worldview that allows for different experiences to be, you know, not ex uh, not this is not about whether or not you accept these experiences, but whether or not you're even open to listening to these experiences, um, then you know, you need to be a good listener to be a good journalist. And if you can't listen, don't go into this field. So it's it's a good thing that you mentioned listeners because that goes into my next question. And, you know, obviously working in radio is so important for you. And I will have to ask, how vital is radio for you and for the listeners? You know, what makes it so special in comparison to what we see on TV or what we get on social media, for example, which, you know, I think in their eyes is much easier to consume information, especially for the younger generation. Well, I'm going to push back on that because I think that uh, radio and podcast listening is probably the most applicable way to get your news and information because we are a time of multitasking. And what better way to be able to drive home, cook dinner, be at the gym, work on your studies, and listen to what's happening? You know, there's so much passive education that's happening. Um, about current events through news and podcasts that, you know, it it's not going to be wasting your time, right? Time is wasting when you're flipping through your phone looking at Facebook um, or Instagram or, or TikTok um, because you never know what you're going to get. It's kind of like a grab bag. But if you are listening to your local NPR member station or listening to your favorite podcast while you're doing a different activity, you know, you're being more productive, but you're being a good consumer of news and information. So, audio rocks. <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. That's exactly why we're doing such a thing here on this interview. Um, I wanted to focus more about J.D. Allen, the reporter. So, when you're looking for a story, you know, to speak to certain people, be it those in your local community, government officials, whatever it may be, to get exactly what you want to get from your story, for your story, what goes into your head and how exactly do you plan it? Yeah, and I think this is really reminiscent of the day that we live in today where there are so many ways to get your opinion out there that the public officials, people with in, in, in authority positions, they have so many outlets to be able to talk to the public um, that it is really important to, well, A, listen to those, filter it through, you know, a a lens of reality and um, also, you know, fact check. But it's even more important that you get 
who it impacts, right? You are your audience is your community, not the officials that you might be covering. So what does it mean to them? And what does it mean to them in the diversity of sources? Because it's not going to affect everybody in your community properly or, or the same rather. Um, so when it goes about planning a news agenda, um, about planning who covers what and how we structure newscasts and how we structure podcasts, podcasts, um, it is, um, you know, you want to weigh all those things and make sure that you are talking to your audience. Yeah. No, I, I think that's very important. I think those are useful tips for for people to to learn from in that sense. You talked about, you know, this whole kind of notion of adapting to, you know, our our own surroundings, our own environments ever since the pandemic started. And that goes into my next question. For you personally, J.D., what has changed for you working from home, you know, doing those numerous functions that you do at the radio station as a professor? What have you been able to learn that I think could indeed be useful when that kind of normality comes back, uh, you know, across our own region? Okay, so I'm going to answer this with a short story and then we'll we'll kind of branch from there. So. At home, I've been working for the last, you know, year plus, and we've cut out an area of our office um, where I've set up like in a little makeshift audio studio with like a curtain and something to muffle sound reverberation and, you know, making it an at home studio as best as I can during this pandemic because we've had to go on air and do things and report stories and it's got to sound good. Um, but, you know, my partner, Julianne, who is also a reporter, also has had to do her, you know, her job from home. And that meant, you know, uh, balancing who gets to be on the phone at the <laughs> same time, who gets to use the office at the same time, who gets to watch TV in the other room with their volume loud while the other person's got deadline coming up and recording. And, you know, we've joked about where I we need like a little red light above the office door that I can press on whenever I'm recording. So, you know, she doesn't come home with her dance, you know, friends and, you know, cause a ruckus in the kitchen. Um, but that example really speaks to, you know, how we've all had to try to figure out how to balance our home lives, which has become 24 seven with our work lives, which has become 24 seven. And that balancing of your personal and your professional life um, is really important. So things that I, you've asked for advice, things that I've really tried to do is, you know, at some point you need to put away your phone. You need to put away your, uh, your, your email. If someone, if there's an emergency, someone will call you, it's going to happen. And then you go for your phone. You know, you separate space in your, in your, in your home. This area is for work and you don't bring work to the kitchen table or to the couch in the living room because that is where you're supposed to relax. That is where you're supposed to share a meal and talk and not do your work. So being able to separate those things are very important. Yeah. And I think it's important in terms from like a mental health perspective, like you don't want it to consume all your attention and, and energy. You know, I think that's something that all of us had to learn about, you know, trying to prioritize obviously our careers and what we do be it from those that work you know in a radio station or those or even for students as well that you know have constantly had to adapt to different surroundings going from home I, I think it is very important to try to 
you know, make use of the time that you have and not let those things that, you know, could be done later, could be done at a specific time, have to be done all throughout the day, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, and I mean, and what you're talking about, the students, is also incredibly important for me as a professor to realize is that, you know, sometimes my students on Zoom had their cameras off um, for, you know, a stretch of time because they were caring for their younger sibling who they're in charge of taking care of while their parent is out working. Or maybe the student was actually called into work and, you know, is trying to balance being a student and a fry cook at the same time. Maybe, you know, maybe they... Um, were able to get out of work early to attend class and they're driving home and they're trying to be safe while being engaged in class. And like all of these things, you know, these are the whole person that we're talking about here. And, you know, we need to recognize that there are that there are whole people out there, not just these fragments that we interact with on a daily basis. And being able to understand that is incredibly important. 100%. So before we get to my final segment, I do have to ask, you know, for people like myself, and I've asked this to all the previous guests that I've had on the show, for people like myself, for young professionals who want to break into this industry, for those that are starting off, for those that want to be experienced professionals, and even for those that, you know, that could be listening that are already in the industry and obviously will want to learn. And I think it's a good point that you make where, you know, you don't know everything at once. What kind of advice would you give to those people that are listening? Yeah, networking. Networking is by far the most important thing that you can do. You know, getting, uh, looking for new jobs, going for uh, into the job market as a young professional. Uh, you know, there are a lot of jobs out there, quote unquote, but it's also about who you know, not just about the jobs that are open. And how do you network? Well, you keep in touch with the people that um, that you've developed your skills with, your mentors. Um, there are also professional organizations out there that promote journalism ethics, um, but also professional development and networking. And those programs are very um, inspiring for your skills, but also a good way for you to meet like-minded people who are going to be willing to bat for you and let you know that there's a position open somewhere and they think that you are great for it. You know, um, I've been close with my alumni group at Newhouse because, as I said, I, you know, went to Newhouse because I really wanted that sense of alumni networking. I'm also going to be the new vice president of the Press Club of Long Island, which is the Regional Society of Professional Journalists. And I joined that group way long ago when I was a student because I wanted to learn new skills and learn to network with the people around me. And it was because of PCLI that I eventually became a teacher at Stony Brook. And because of PCLI, I went to um, get my master's at Newhouse. And because PCLI, it got me a job at Suffolk County Community College. So it's really important to find these professional development environments and network. Yeah. And it all goes a long way and it all go full circle and can really help you advance into your career. So I completely understand that 100%. And I'm trying to do that as well in trying to know more people in this industry and those that can indeed be useful, you know, until, you know, by the time I finish college and, and whatnot. So there, I completely agree. And Roberto, there are groups everywhere. I mean, and of such niche ideas. If you are LGBTQ, there are journalism groups out there for you. If you love environmental reporting, there are groups out there for you. If you are a journalist of color, there are groups out there for you. If you are AAPI, there are groups out there for you. Join these groups. Join 
you know, there sometimes can be like a, a dues or, or membership cost that can be a little, uh, you know, <laughs> gutting. But, you know, if you're a student, a lot of them have student rates. Take advantage of them now. And that way, at least you'll be cushioned for the next couple of years, maybe. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so I'm going into my final segment, which, you know, has been a joy for all of our previous guys. And I'm sure you're going to like this as well. Obviously, it's a series of lightning round questions that I obviously have prepared for myself. So you don't know what it is. So I'm going to come right at you. And I want you to answer all these questions in, in just a couple words, basically. So are you ready, JD? Oh, I am ready. Okay. So the best place to visit in Long Island? Um, I really love the east end of Long Island. I'm going to say anywhere on the Peconic Bay. The hidden gem on Long Island. Um, any diner or dive, I just order the Turkey Club. Wait, no, well, you got to pick one now. You got to pick one. If you had, if you had to think of one diner that you um, recommend, the, there, there's a diner in a Stony Brook Village called Sweet Mama's. That, oh boy, it's so good. <laughs> I'll have to check it out then. Best place to visit in Connecticut. Best place to visit in Connecticut, I, again, am partial to the eastern end, so I'm going to say I love New London. It's a great city. It is a really good city. I've, I've enjoyed going there as well. There's a lot to do there. The hidden gem in Connecticut. Hmm. Nowhere near the Merritt Parkway. <laughs> um, I'm going to say at my friend's house that I've gotten to know uh, since working at the station. The best state you visited in the United States? The best state. Well, I'm a New Yorker, so I'm going to have to say New York. Oh, come but on. if I'm going to go outside of this um, area, um, I've got a friend who's visiting right now um, uh, some of the canyons. Uh, I would go back to Arizona in a heartbeat. I just love the, the canyons. It looks so pi picturesque. So I w I'm going to say Arizona for right now. Best city or town that you visited in the United States? I really want to go back to... Uh, San Francisco, mm. uh, home of the martini, home of the Irish coffee, and home of uh, sourdough bread. <laughs> Your favorite musician or group that you grew up listening to? I've been getting really into folk music over the pandemic, and I've been learning the banjo. Um, so I'm going to say anything with a, uh, a claw hammer banjo in it right now. <laughs> you really are a country boy, just like looking at everything that you've said. That, 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 I'm, I'm seeing you in the next... 45, 50 years retiring somewhere in the outskirts of Arizona just playing a banjo, just relaxing, sipping on a martini or something. Boy, that sounds like a dream right now. <laughs> Your journalism inspiration. My journalism inspiration today is um, telling a better version of history, a more complete version of history. Your favorite journalist right now, be it on TV, radio, whatever it may be. My favorite journalist right now. Oh, boy, that is really hard. I mean, I've met some really incredible journalists um, through my short career. Um, that is incredibly difficult. I'm going to say Annie Ropeek from uh, New Hampshire Public Radio because she's been an awesome climate editor through the New England News Collaborative, which we um, are a part of at WSHU Public Radio, and she is so thoughtful about the way that she covers climate and climate issues. So I'm going to give this up to Annie. Love it. We're going to go into this section where you have to just say one word to describe the following. I'm going to give you a word, and you have to just describe one word uh, on that. Journalism. Awesome. <laughs> Stony Brook. Educational. Syracuse. Networking. Fencing. A pastime. <laughs> the United States. Developing. Radio. Listen to it. Or li listen. Listen, yeah. 
Teaching. Inspirational. WSHU. Listen. <laughs> Long Island. Home. Connecticut. Work. <laughs> Your students. Inspirational. And finally, this is my favorite question of them all. How do you feel about getting married? Oh, boy. I, wedding, <laughs> one word, um, stressed. No, in general. Not, not even oh, just one oh. word, in general. Um, you know, it's been really great. Um, I had bought a ring for Julianne um, before the pandemic. Um, and when the pandemic started, I hid the ring away because I didn't want to propose during the pandemic. And then once it didn't go away, I had proposed in August of 2020 when the infection rates went down. And it was great. But now we're planning a wedding during a pandemic, which is more stressful than anything else. Um, but uh, it's going to be really great in um, April 9th, 2022. Nice. And you better have a good honeymoon spot as well. Do you have an idea yet, or are you just waiting for it as it comes? Uh, I would like a non-infectious area, please. Okay, that that's perfect. I think that's for all of us really don't want to yeah. travel. JD, thank you so much for being a part of the sixth episode of Between the Bylines. It was an absolute blast having you on, and you know, hope to speak to you very, very soon. Roberto, thank you. So, as always, you can listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And as always, thank you for listening to Between the Bylines. Mm-hmm.